Well, good morning again to all of you, and of course it's great to see you. You have a lot of guests here, a number of you. Thank you for coming. I have um, really looked forward to this day, to being with you, and uh, sharing in the celebration of God's goodness and grace, not only in my life, but in the life of our church also. The Lord's done so much uh, in us over the last, over the last 25 years. Uh, I want to thank Esther for singing. It was very beautiful, and I know you very much wanted to sing that as an offering to the Lord, but also to bless me, and you surely did. And uh, Dale Volker, our organist, really superb, as you know, and yet a humble guy and uh, so willing to yield the prelude. Um, I'm just natural for him to do, but I don't think that's natural for all organists to do. He's a dear friend and uh, dear brother. Certainly want to say thank you to Terrence. I said in this morning, you know, you're in the deep end of the pond now. But uh, he has broad shoulders and his head is, is well, above, well above the water. There's no question about that. Um, Luke, you do such a great job directing music. And I'm so appreciated. And Luke said I wrote uh, that song, the hymn of praise uh, for Jesus. Uh, well, I wrote the lyrics, but he did all the music and all the arranging, and uh, that's really what makes this song so rich. Uh, I want to say thank you to Bobby. Where are you, Bobby? Bobby Kojak. Where's he? He's way in the back, yeah. Come back in the sanctuary. Drop your coffee off, and let's talk. <laughs> uh, you know, your, your marks are so kind, and, uh, and it's been an honor to minister to your family and to other families as well, and... Uh, I would just say to my brother Gordon Bell, and thank you for what you've said, and I'm glad today that, uh, that you spoke about me as your pastor rather than as one of your parolees. Um, a lot of kind things have been said about me today, but I have to say that the truest things that were said about me today were in the confession of sin that uh, David led, and... Uh, I just want to acknowledge that uh, next to Diane, my bride, uh, David and I have been co-conspirators in ministry for the longest time, and uh, goes back almost 40 years, over 35 now, I think, or 35 anyway. And so when he came up to confess, lead us in a confession, I said, <clears throat> I said David, don't name all my sins. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, this is not a testimonial. <laughs> Thank you, David, my dear brother. I want to read to us uh, from Philippians, the third chapter, uh, to the fourth chapter, verse, verse 1. And the reason I'm going to read it uh, 3-1 to 4-1 is because that's the pericope. That's the section that really holds together. So I think the uh, chapter division, uh, where chapter 4 is uh, introduced, is a bit of a, does a bit of a disservice. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and as you know, he, he stands the very real possibility of execution. So he doesn't know if he's ever going to see these people again. He doesn't know if he's ever going to speak with them again, if they'll ever have occasion to be together. And so this chapter especially, or these verses especially, are something of a, I don't know if I should say a valedictory address, but they are, they are his heartfelt words to him, to, to the church, in a situation of um, what for him then was crisis and, um, and potential separation. 
So this is how he begins. He says, finally, my brothers, finally, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And you understand that's really what he's talking about when he names circumcision. He's not just talking about the physical circumcision that uh, Jewish believers or Jewish antagonists of Christ were insisting that Christians undergo, but really any confidence and reliance in the flesh, in, uh, in ourselves rather than in Christ as our Savior. He says, put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, present tense, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Oh, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray together. Father, I do ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I want to take you back to the first verse for a minute. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To, rate, to write the same things for, to you is no trouble for me and is safe and is safe for you. Isn't that an odd statement? It is safe for you. 
Now here, as I mentioned, Paul is writing a church that he loves very, very deeply. And maybe in, for the last time, he's in chains. He faces, he faces execution. It may not happen, but who knows? And so when he begins writing here, finally, he, his words really stand as a sort of a, a, a farewell just in case. Paul's writing personally here. He's writing very passionately to this congregation because he loves them so much. And this congregation has, has loved him. He's received his ministry. They've supported him for many years. And that's what you've done for me. And so it was when I was traveling this summer to uh, Seattle with Diane as we were on our flight, and I read this, this passage. He began to reflect on it and think about it. I just knew that this, these were the words I wanted to preach to you as my farewell as well this morning. The, verse, the first verse begins with rejoice in the Lord, and the very last verse, chapter 4, verse 1, concludes with, So, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I'm bringing that last verse, that ad, final admonition, to the first verse. Bringing that all together really helps explain the the odd words that Paul wrote when he said that the rejoicing in the Lord and telling them to do that, he said it's safe for you. Safe is a physical word. It literally means without tripping. It literally means without falling. So what Paul is saying here is rejoice in the Lord continually. Continually rejoice in Christ. This will serve to keep you on solid ground. This will keep you grounded in Christ. You're rejoicing in Him this is how, drawing from the last verse in our passage today, this is how you will stand firm. Rejoice in the Lord. Continually rejoice in the Lord. Don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. Don't let anything stand in your way. And that's very, very clear from the verses that follow when he talks about the circumcision. He is saying, beware of anything that robs you of your joy in Christ. Beware of anything that would take from you your confidence in Christ and your total delight in him as your savior beware anything that would rob you of the freedom of forgiveness that you have that you might rejoice in Christ always and if you come across some teaching if you come across some idea if you come across some attitude in someone some claim to be true that does that, that robs you of that joy, your full joy in Christ, in Christ alone. I mean, no matter how necessary that claim or that truth seems to be, no matter how widespread that approval happens to be among other Christian churches, if it takes it from you, that joy in Christ from you, something is wrong. You do not have to be a great theologian to know that. You have the Holy Spirit. To teach you. Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. That's a whole being term. Don't hold anything back. Be wholehearted. Be, be all in with, with Christ. Let not a single part of you, let nothing separate even a single part of you, your brain, the way you think, your soul, the way you, you feel the heart, the way from which you love. Let no part of, nothing stop even the smallest part of you from clinging and loving 
Christ. Nothing. It reminds me of a proverb. You know that Proverbs chapter 5, 18, it says, Rejoice always in the wife of your youth. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been married. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's teaching us don't restrain. It's saying to us, don't restrain yourself. Enjoy the pleasures. And this is written to a son. Enjoy the pleasures of loving your wife with everything you've got. And it really is true that couples who rejoice in each other are in for a long marriage filled with so much protection. And it will help that rejoicing in one another, that entering into one another with love and joy continually will protect them and will guard them and will keep them from wicked influences that are often quite veiled. Now, this commandment to rejoice in the Lord, this is really what we're focusing on today. What does it really mean? And I just kind of break it out in three parts. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying rejoice in the Lord for who he is. You know, rejoice in the Lord for what he has done. He's saying rejoice in the Lord for what he has in store for you. Rejoice. Rejoice in who he is. There is a most potent scene in Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Henry is in France with his army. And it's the day before the terrible battle at Agincourt. And the British army, the English army rather, is greatly outnumbered. So Henry wraps himself up in a cloak so people won't recognize him. And he begins to make his way through the camp of his soldiers. And he stops at the campfires to speak to the various clusters of soldiers and to listen to them and understand what they're, what they're thinking and to encourage them. And he comes upon one group of soldiers, and they're kind of trading banter back and forth. And one of them is a rough-hewn man named Pistol. And Henry asks him, What are you, Pistol? As good a man as the emperor, Henry. Then you're better than the king. And Pistol cries out like a calf bawling for its mother. The king's a bowcock, a heart of gold, a lad of life, an imp of fame, a parent's good, a fist most valiant. I kiss his dirty shoe, and from heartstring, I love that lovely bully. Don't get lost in the details. (laughs) You understand what he's saying. What's your response when your loyalty to Christ is challenged? Is it fierce joy? Is it fierce and is it joyful? That man, Jesus, he is the sinless son of God, a purest heart the light of the world, the very love of God. I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandal, and yet by his own goodwill and kindness, he has drawn me to himself and promoted me to his service. I would have no other master. Love him for who he is. Whatever gets in the way of that does not belong in your life, in your mind. In your heart, it doesn't belong there. Whatever it is, wherever it is, it does not belong there. So put it away from you or get yourself away from it. 
He'll keep you safe. Rejoice in the Lord for what he's done. You know, Jesus died in the manner he did in order to compel us to rejoice in him for loving us so much. Now, that may seem like a bit odd, of an odd statement. What do I mean by he died in the manner he did? What do I mean by that? Well, we talk about Jesus taking upon himself our guilt. We talk about him taking on our our sin to suffer in a place, our place, to suffer the penalty of our sin, which in contrast to life, such penalty, which in contrast to life, such penalty is described as death. And in contrast to light, it is described as darkness. And in contrast to a place of beauty and comfort, it is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a Gehenna, a foul, disgusting, choking heap of burning trash. Well, surely Jesus could have covered our sin. Surely he could have satisfied God's justice quite apart from our view. He could have done all that quite apart from our view. On some remote island, maybe, some inaccessible place. And had that happened, of course, Jesus' atonement would likely have no greater impression on us than gratitude for someone who paid a debt for us. But that's not the way Jesus made atonement. That was not the manner in which he died. That's not how God orchestrated his son. Rather, he had his son enter the most holy city in the world, home of the most God-favored people in the world, and all very publicly and before all who would want to see him. And it was there, rather than being received and rather than being worshipped, that he was subjected to, to every indignity. He was publicly humiliated, and he was executed then in the most brutal means, by the most brutal means possible, And all of this Jesus knew before it ever happened. He knew it ahead of time. He'd spoken about it earnestly. In fact, not only that, he knew more ahead of time. He knew that his public agonies would be superficial compared with his inner horrors by which his face would become more distorted than any other man's that would lead him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As no one had ever cried out before. Because when Jesus spoke those words, they were absolutely true. And so what we see is that God orchestrated his son's atoning death to be a twin memorial. A memorial to our innate hostility toward him that we should cause him to suffer as much as possible and a memorial of his unfathomable love toward us that he would use that occasion of such intense suffering to actually redeem us by enduring so much worse. The most extreme proof of our human depravity 
And our lost occasion was the occasion also of God's most extreme proof of his unconditional love and his determination to reconcile us to himself. I mean, how, when we understand this, can we not rejoice in the Lord for what he has done for us? To love him so deeply for it. I'm so glad Christ atoned for our sins in the way, in the manner, in the circumstance in which he did. Carrie set one of the hymns to music recently, and this is really what I'm talking about. Because he, he suffered in the manner in which he did on the cross, in the circumstance that he was, he was in under the torture of human depravity, we can see that what he did was love. It was absolute love. We sing this. Here, you look at the cross. Here is love. Vast as an ocean. Loving kindness is a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. I think the great hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which on which my Savior died. Uh, my richest gain I count but loss. This is Paul in Philippians 3. And poor contempt on all my pride. The best theology is the theology of joy about Christ, is, a the, is, is theology of joy in Christ. It is loving him. It is rejoicing in him for who he is, for what he did, Think about how Paul thought about the cross. In Galatians 2, he was writing and defending the gospel. And he did so by articulating a doctrine that we know as justification by faith. That we are saved by trusting Christ alone and not by any works that we do. Or we could expand it simply and more accurately to say we are actually saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. You can hear that doctrine, justification by faith. You can hear it so often, and it can actually almost come to sound mechanical. It can almost come to sound like something that, well, no longer engages our hearts. But that was never Paul, and that was never the way Paul talked about the cross. Paul talked about the cross this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's talking about the cross. He loved me from the cross. He gave himself for me from the cross. Rejoice in the Lord for what he has in store for you. I preached two weeks ago on heaven. And since Paul makes no apology for repeating himself I won't make any apology for repeating uh, what Paul said as well and I quoted it a couple weeks ago it is a verse that probably lifts me like no other that I has not seen nor has ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man all that all that God has prepared for those who love him 
You know, we see in a mirror dimly. But the fact heaven is veiled to us in that way really is, I think, for our safety. Heaven is so wonderful that in our present state of being, the best among us could not resist exalting ourselves if we knew what God had in store for us. I think that's very much what Paul saw when he was caught up to the third heaven. To keep him from exalting himself, he was given a thorn in his flesh, some, some agent, some demonic agency to torment him. That's how great heaven is. But when Christ calls us home and we enter into God's glory, his glory will then enter into us. When we see Jesus for who he is, like the most brilliant light, his light, the light of his glory, will so transfuse our entire being that there will be no darkness in us and no place for darkness ever, ever again. His glory is going to transform us so completely and absolutely that we are new. We are new. Car lovers, you want to sell that beater of yours and go out and buy something what? New. It's beautiful. You will be new. Paul purposefully personalizes his longing and his joy for what's in store. He speaks so passionately of wanting to know Christ as well as he possibly can now. He speaks so happily of suffering the loss of all things in order to do that. He counts them as rubbish to gain Christ. He speaks of being so willing to suffer and even ready to die because he wants to share in Christ's resurrection. Yet at the end of verse 11, he pauses in the midst of this beautiful soliloquy as if to look directly at his, at his reader. He talks about all these things he wants to do and this knowledge of Christ and all he's willing to give up and all he's willing to endure. And, but then he says, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he repeats himself, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward prize and call of God in Christ Jesus. And I have to tell you that living this way is really living in the joy of the Lord over what he has in store for us. And this, too, is safe for you. This is your safety. I entitled this sermon, Bonus Time, because Paul's words weren't only his farewell, just in case his life was soon to be taken. As we read these words, they also include his testimony of how he intends to go on living his life, and we just covered that, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead. It includes his testimony of how he intends to live his life in the event his life is spared, how he will 
He's talking about how he will spend his bonus time. If he gets bonus time, this is what I'm going to do with it. And for me, retirement means bonus time. And I want to say that I'm very deeply grateful to the Lord, and I'm very deeply grateful to you for giving me bonus time. And it is a new opportunity to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But when I say that, it's not only an opportunity for me to press on. It is an opportunity also for you. So that we press on, whether we're together or whether or not, so that as we press on, we can continue, even absent from one another, to boast of each other in the Lord. And all the more on the day that we stand before him together in heaven. Imagine that day, standing before him, together in heaven. And I want you to know that it would be my greatest privilege. It would be my great honor when I am there in heaven to be standing beside each of you. You're my church. To be standing with you would be great, great honor. And as Paul looked forward to that day with people whom he loved and served and who loved and served him, that's a day we all look forward to also together. God bless you. Thank you.